Good morning, Harvest. Why don't you go ahead and uh, grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 is where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible on you this morning, you have people coming up the aisles right now who would love to get a Bible into your hands. So if you didn't bring your Bible, if you forgot a Bible, throw your hand up, grab one of these. If you don't own a copy of God's word, for sure throw your hand up, grab one of these as our gift to you. Take this home with you. I don't, I don't have a lot of great stuff to say except to say, hey, here's what God's word says. And so we, we wanna dig into God's word every Sunday together. We wanna dig into God's word through the week. So be sure you have a copy of God's word with you. Turn to Luke chapter 15. We're going to be this morning. New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Before we uh, jump into uh, what we have this morning, I do have one quick announcement I want to throw your way. Um, <clears throat> if you've been watching on the news at all, you know of the devastation that's been happening in Texas and in, 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 in with the flood, with Hurricane Harvey and all the stuff that's going on with that. We have some churches in our family of churches that are, that are there that have been impacted by this and they're now kind of rallying their people to how can we take care of our neighbors and be a part of the, the mission of, of, of helping and being the hands and feet of Jesus in the midst of this crisis. And so what we've done is we want to partner with them as a church. And so uh, just this week as elders, we're praying over, you know, what do we do? So we're, we decided to take money out of our missions budgets. We're sending a thousand bucks down there as they, they're, they're putting together these trailers that are going to be filled with all supplies they could take into all these areas. And so we want to support what they're doing. But here's the thing. If you're like, man, a thousand bucks, we could do more. Great. So could you. So here's, if you want to do more, then, then please come grab one of us, grab, grab, grab an elder or a pastor and say, man, I, I, I want to be a part of that too. If you want to do, you're like, yeah, I don't have money to give, but I've got some time. Would they ever like take somebody to help with the stuff? For sure. So the pastor at Harvest Houston, so if you go online, harvesthoustonnwnorthwest.org, <clears throat> go on there, connect with Pastor John there and say, hey, my pastor told me that you could take some people and you put them up and I want to help. So if you want to go and help, he said, tell people to come. You won't have great accommodations because it's all flooded. So, um, <clears throat> but he said, I'll get them a sleeping bag and a floor to sleep on. If we, he said, we could use people just serving and helping. So if you want to serve in that way, then I want to open that door to you to for sure jump in on that. If you forgot everything I said except serve and you just want to come grab me and say, hey, what did you say? How do I connect? I'd love to connect you with how that could happen, all right? All right, hey, let me pray, and then we're going to jump into God's Word this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your care. Thank you for your love. Thank you, Lord God, as we're about to open up your Word and see this morning for your love that pursues us and changes us. Lord God, I pray that this morning that you would do that. You would pursue our hearts even this morning. Father, where our hearts have run from you, Lord God, whether we're running towards sin, whether we're just running away from you, whether we're running towards even good things that, that, that uh, are trying to draw us away from just you and seeing you, Lord God, that this morning, this morning, draw our hearts back to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As you get your Bibles open to, to Luke chapter 15, you know, there were... Uh, there were two types of Oprah Winfrey shows. Remember that show she had? There were two, I realized me just talking about I watch Oprah Winfrey, I've just checked my man card in. No, I, it was all for research for this sermon, right guys? I took the hit for you. All right, so <clears throat> Oprah Winfrey, she had that, that talk show thing. There were two of them that were the, the kind of the, the two types of shows that got, that got so much attention. Do you remember there were one of them was this? It's when she gave stuff away. Remember that? She could have in the whole uh, car, the whole audience filled fill there, the whole studio. She'd be like, I'm gonna give away. And she just, she gave away trips to Disney World, the whole studio got a trip to Disney World. 
She gave away trips to, to Australia. Remember the one she gave away a car to every single person? She's like, and you get a car, and you get a car, and you get, she's given, it's just unbelievable, right? That's just extravagant giving. Now, the other type of show that got a huge amount of attention, maybe you remember this, she did these more early on in the time when she did her show when she would reunite people, people that hadn't seen each other for a long time. And you, you can even hear it, even as I said that, people go, hmm. There's something about that, about, about family that's been separated, then brought back together. Our hearts are drawn to that. And those episodes, you'd see the reveal would happen, right? The person would come from backstage and it would just be tears and hugs and kisses and crying as they're restored. I mean, there's something about those two types of shows that sort of draw our hearts. We'd love to be in the studio for the giveaway, for sure, right? And our hearts feel that longing for that, that reunited, uh, that, that maybe you have someone in your life that, that's been separated, that's been estranged from you, and you feel that, 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 that man, I would love that kind of reunited. Well, Jesus tells us this story, and in this parable, it's filled with both of those things. It's, it's filled with extravagant giving and a reunion, a lost relationship restored, a, a person who had gone, were lost, but now they're found. It's the most famous of all of Jesus' stories. You don't have to grow up in church to recognize this story. You, you've probably heard it before, the story of the prodigal son. Now, if you've, if you've never heard the story of the prodigal son before, the spoiler alert, I'm about to tell you how it ends, okay? The, 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 the rebellious son, he's got two sons, a younger son, rebellious. He runs off with, with all his, the wealth that he got from his dad. He disowns his family. He dishonors his father. He breaks his dad's heart. He ends up as a train wreck of a guy. Totally lost, broken, a failure, just destitute. He returns home. He doesn't know what he's going to expect as he comes home. Look at verse 20 of chapter 15. And he arose, talking about that son, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. It, it's, it's like the son comes out from behind the backstage and the person sitting beside Oprah. They don't wait. The father jumps up right away, runs to him. And Jesus is telling this story. Why? He, he, he's telling the story to explain the love of God. He says the father who, who represents God in this story runs to the rebellious son and kisses him. I mean, think about the love undisplayed in that picture right there. I mean, it's one thing to know that your father loves you. It's another thing to have him in tears hug and kiss you. It's this, this love that's fully expressed. It's, it's not just love talked about. It's love experienced. So the question that I have as I read that, maybe you have it too, is how do I experience that kind of love from God? I mean, how, how can I experience God in that way? How can I have my life look like that picture? How, how can I not just know about the love of God? How do I actually experience this love of God where I can say the creator of the universe is my father and he loves me. So Jesus tells this story. 
Now, now when Jesus tells parables, he's not telling stories like we think of stories like, hey, grab a nice blanket and a hot cup of cocoa and get in a big chair so you can read your story. No, it's not that. It's not, it's not hey, kids, get your stuffy and, and get your blankie and let's go to bed. I'm going to tell you a nice story as I put you to bed. No, no. When Jesus told stories, he was answering a question. And the answer he gave in the form of a story would rock people to their core. Jesus' stories, his parables, which are these made-up stories with a truth, a truth that turns people's worlds upside down. Jesus telling this story would make the listener think, does God really love people that way? I mean, the story was an offensive story. This was a, a shocking, turn your whole worldview upside down when you thought of God kind of story. In fact, I would say this, this story more than any other story, more than any other parable that Jesus told, for me personally, has shaped the way I view God. This story has, has flipped up my idea of, of God and of the gospel, the good news that says that, yes, you're a sinner, more sinful than you ever would admit to anybody, but you're more loved than you could ever imagine. This story here shaped that view more than any other story. In fact, in fact, here's the thing. For the longest time, I had always thought, as I read this story, I've heard it a lot of times, that when I hear the word prodigal, I had an idea of what the word prodigal means. And I thought, oh, yeah, prodigal means run away. Prodigal means a, a brat kid, a punk kid, a disobedient kid. That's what prodigal is. And, and it's the way we use the word in our culture, right? We talk about prodigal sons and daughters. But the, the word prodigal, what it actually literally means is wasteful, reckless. It, it means you, you spend until you have nothing left. It's that person, person in, in Vegas that just keeps pushing more money to the middle of the table. Like, you, you, you gotta stop, man. You're losing it all. No, no, here's a deed to my house. No, no, here's my wedding ring. No, 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 here's my kid's inheritance. No, here's it. Like, you gotta, that's, that's too much. It's reckless. It's extravagant. It's wild. It's, in fact, if you look at verse 13, you see where the word is actually used. Verse 13, it says, Not many days the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a faraway country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. It's where the old King James Version said, prodigal living. It's reckless. It's wasteful. So when you hear this story of the, what we call the prodigal son, I, I think maybe a better title might be the prodigal father. If it's about extravagance, if it's about what seems like recklessness, the father's love is totally prodigal in this story. It's, it's, it's extravagant. It's, it's over the top. It's, it's totally reckless. It's, it's, it's all in. And you're thinking, man, God, how could you love like that? How could you pour out love like this? And so what happens is we read this story and Jesus wants to talk about who God is. So verse 11 starts and he said, there was a man who had two sons. He has these two sons. He has a, the younger son, the one we call the prodigal son, the one we normally think of. And why is that? Why, why do we normally think the story's about that one? Because I think we relate mostly to the prodigal son and we want to be really the star of every story. So we think, well, that's what the story's about. It's about the prodigal son. And but there's not just a younger son. There's an older son in the story. And I don't even think they're the main characters in the story. The father is mentioned 12 times in 20 verses it's a story of the father pouring out his love on both his sons. 
And you're going to see God pouring out his love on two very different types of people. And, and maybe you fit into one of these two categories. He pours his love out on the rebellious son who runs away from the father in rebellion. Who says, I don't want you, God. I'm running after this sin, this stuff, this rebellion. That's what I want. But then there's an older son, the self-righteous older son. I mean, he hates what the father does with his love. He's like, that's so prodigal what you do with that love. That's so wasteful. I can't believe my, my dad stood up there with, and he's just like, I can't, I can't believe that the God, the Father, would stand there and he would say, and you get a new life, and you get a new life, and you get a new life, and he, he hates that. But really, what's he doing? And maybe, maybe you can relate more in this way. He runs from the love of the Father through religion, through following the rules, through really self-righteousness. This week, we're going to look really closely at the younger son. Next week, we're going to dig more into looking at the older son. But both weeks, I want us to look at the love of the father. So, so we're going to dig in. And as we dig in, I got, you're going to be a part of this sermon, right? I got something you want that I want you guys to do. There are going to be parts in this sermon where it is so unbelievably shocking what we're going to read that you won't be able to help yourself from going, <gasps> I'll help you know when those are. Okay, so I'll hold this up, all right? <clears throat> So you're, you're going to do it. So, so let's practice it right now. Okay, ready? ready? Give me one. Well done. That's good. All right. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. I'll let you know when it's coming, okay? So, so our first point this morning is this, that, that God's love is, is an extravagant love. God's love is extravagant. How do we see it? We say here in verse 11, there's a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that's coming to me. You ready? Yeah, it, that wasn't even very good. There's only a few people that did it. He says, Dad, give me, give me the property. Give me my inheritance now. Yeah, it's totally shocking. That, that's what the people listening would have been doing. Because what he was doing, what he was asking for showed how horrible this kid was. He didn't, he didn't care at all about how much his father had worked to build up this inheritance for his family, how much his father had saved for the next generation. And he showed this, this hatred for his dad because what he was saying, when he's saying, give me my inheritance, he's the younger brother. He if, there's, if there's only two sons, it would have been divided up one-third for the younger brother, two-thirds for the older brother. The oldest gets double the amount. That's how they did in their culture. And so what he's saying when he says, give me my inheritance, what he's really saying is, dad, I would rather you were dead. Dad, Dad, you're the only thing in between me and getting what I want. I want my freedom, and I want nothing to do with you. I want nothing to do with this family. I want nothing to do with this community. I want nothing to do with any of you. Just give me my inheritance. I'm out of here. I mean, what this guy did, it's, it's the lowest a son could go. I mean, I have three daughters, and just thinking that, that they would ever say, Dad, I want nothing to do with you absolutely breaks my heart. The son, he's saying, Dad, no more lectures this time. No more advice this time. I, I don't want your leadership. I just want the cash. I don't want you. I just want what you give me. Jesus here, he's given a picture of what sin is like. I mean, I think it's, it's something that we've participated in on some level, all of us. Really what sin is, the essence of sin, is where we say, God, I don't want you in my life. 
God, I, I want to control my life. I, I, I want to make the rules. I, I don't want you in this. I don't, want, I don't value your input right now, Lord. So sin's really just saying, I'm going to be in charge. I'm the point of the story. I, 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 I want to make the rules. I want to be in control. I mean, often I think we think of sin as these like heinous, horrible acts when really all it is is where we say, I want to be my own God. God, I... I like the gifts you give me, but I don't want you. Now, what's the dad do? What's the dad do? Look at verse 11. It goes on. Sorry, verse 12. The younger brother said to him, to his father, give me, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. It says, and he divided his property between them. Yeah, horribly shocking that the dad would do that. Horribly shocked. In that day, what would a dad normally do when a son would do that to him, when a son would dishonor him that way? Normally what would have happened is the father would have struck his, his son across the face, a backhand across the face. Then he would have gathered the community together. They would have performed, performed what's called the kazaza. It's a ceremony they would have where they would smash a pot in front of the son and say, you're cut off from this community. And after that ceremony, the whole village would have nothing to do with this kid. They disowned him. Once a rebellious son was disowned by his father, he could never come back. So the listeners, hearing this, they, they were, <gasps> they, they were thought, what a weak father. It's shameful what the dad did. The dad now bears the shame. The dad now bears the public humiliation of being a weak father. Why? He chose shame to be a loving father. He chose shame to love. God's love is extravagant. I mean, you see what's happening here. I've already told you the end of the story. The son eventually comes back. The son eventually repents and comes back to his father. But the father here, even before the son does that, he's pouring out love on him. So even when you do turn, when you do repent, when you do come back to the Lord, listen, it's God's love that initiates that. It's God's love that initiates that run back to him. God is pursuing God is loving even in the moment of total rebellion. Now, I don't know how you rolled in here this morning. I don't know what's going on in your heart or going on in your life. But listen, God's love for you is extravagant. Right now, wherever you're at, in sin, in brokenness, in pride, in rebellion, in anything you're in right now, bearing shame, God's pursuing you, and God's loving you. Verse 13, it goes on. Get ready, it's coming. He said, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Oh, that was really good, wow. Here's a Jewish kid. He leaves his home. And you notice Jesus painting this picture as bad as he can paint it. He says he went away to a faraway country. 
He didn't just leave his home. He didn't just leave his family. He left his faith. He left his culture. He took off into a Gentile country and he squandered his money. He threw it away on reckless, wild, loose living. He, he was greedy. He was materialistic. He, he was just living the life in total debauchery. His brother, when he comes back later on, says, Dad, he spent his money on prostitutes. He was living the high life for a while. I mean, life was good for this guy. He, he, was, he was hanging out with the wealthy. He was, he was, he was partying with Justin Bieber. He was, he was in magazines. Like, he was living the life. But it didn't take long for him to lose it all. <coughs> Verse 14 says, When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he spends it all. It says a, a severe famine arose. It, it's a first century way of saying there was an economic downturn, right? This guy's got nothing. So what happens? Verse 15, verse 16. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed the pigs. Yes. And he, he's longing to be fed with the pods the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. Here's this Jewish kid. He's left everything, his home, his family, everything. He's destitute, he's penniless, he's hungry, but he's so full of pride, he wouldn't go and ask for help. He wouldn't come home. Instead, what's he do? He hires himself out. The, the word there literally says he attached himself to. He glued himself to. He joined himself to. He didn't just come ask for work. He's begging, take me to feed pigs. Those listening would have been unbelievably shocked when Jesus said that. A Jewish boy feeding pigs, unclean animals. I mean, that job was the lowest job you could get. It was demeaning. It paid next to nothing. It's why he wanted to eat the food that was thrown to the pigs. It's the worst job you could ever have. It, it, it was given to those who had no skills. Those who were social outcasts would take that job. Here he is, rock bottom. And yet, doesn't that give such a clear picture of where sin takes us? I mean, it usually starts out great. In fact, the Bible even says that there are pleasures in sin. I, mean, I remember growing up in church and hearing preachers saying, man, sin isn't any fun. And I'm thinking, you must be doing it wrong, right? Because it is fun. The Bible says there's pleasure in sin, but it says this, for a season, it begins fun, but it ends in darkness. Man, if you're taking notes, write this verse down. It's a great verse. Psalm 16, 4. Psalm 16, 4, it says, The sorrows for those who run after another God shall multiply. The sorrows for those who run after another God shall multiply. So think of the two sons, who they represent in this story. Jesus was talking to a group of people, it says in the beginning of chapter 15, to tax collectors and sinners. So the younger brother, the totally, I, I, I know I'm a sinner and I'm just lost in it. He's speaking to Pharisees, the religious ones, the self-righteous. And this is what that verse is saying, those who run after another God. So whether you're running after sinful things, saying this is gonna satisfy me, or whether you're running after religion and self-righteousness, both of those are running to sorrow. It's where sin ends up. And some of you this morning, maybe you're there. 
Maybe you've discovered the the sin and the pain of of sexual sin. And you carry the shame of of things you've done, of things you've seen. Maybe you're in the the pigsty of broken relationships. There's family strife or friendship strife or strife at work and and you've burned every single bridge and and you carry the weight of that. Or or maybe you're in debt and you've made bad choices financially. Or, or maybe you're just in the darkness of secret sin that you've never confessed to anybody. And it's eating you alive. I mean, that, that path that promised so much, this was going to give me so much. This, this thing was supposed to be so good and now here I am trapped in that addiction. It didn't lead where it promised. I'm, and you're running from God and your sorrow's been multiplied. In fact, it's been said this way before, that sin will always take you farther than you want to go, cost you more than you want to pay, and keep you longer than you want to stay. I mean, the listeners of this story, hearing Jesus tell this story, they would have thought that son was trash. He had wandered further away than anyone could ever imagine. Think of the worst sinner in the worst place, and that's the way they would see this son. John MacArthur, in his book on the prodigal son, said this, he was clearly an object worthy of more contempt than pity. He was so utterly covered with reproach and ill repute that they had no doubt completely written him off as unredeemable. You don't see the prodigal son listening to this story and go, man, that's too bad for that guy. You see me say, man, he deserved that. I cannot believe that. There's no way that that guy could ever change. Listen, if if you're here this morning and that's where you're at, you're in that far away country, listen, God loves you during all of this. God's love is extravagant. In fact, I would say this, when you're hearing the story being played out here, think of it almost as a, as a split screen where, where we're watching right now what the son's doing, pursuing after all these things, getting himself into just a horrible place. But on the other side of the screen, on the other split side, you see the father loving, searching, pursuing, never giving up, never stopping loving his son. Again, who's the main character of the story? It's the father. Through the whole journey, watching, waiting, never stopping, loving his child. In fact, this story here, it's the third of three stories. Remember the story of the lost sheep and the lost coin. And what was it? There was a a peasant woman searching for the coin. There was a shepherd searching for the sheep. Now you have a story about a lost child. And think about the intensity growing. Man, if you lose your wallet or your phone, you're like intense looking for it, your car keys. Jesus goes, yeah, yeah, now let me tell you about a lost child. The father is not passive in this story. He's not sitting back going, doesn't matter. Loving his son. In fact, the apostle John says that we come to the father because he draws us to himself. That God arranges the circumstances in our life. That God's drawing our hearts to himself. And and often in in our lives, God's using those painful circumstances, those things that we've gotten into by our bad choices that we're in because of somebody else's bad choices. And God's right in that saying, I'm drawing you to myself. In fact, I love how C.S. Lewis says it. He says that God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I mean, all of this, God pursuing. 
Why? Because God's not going to leave you in the pigsty. His, his love just isn't extravagant. Here's our second point this morning. God's love is transforming. God's not just going to let you stay in the, in the wreck and brokenness and shame of your sin. He goes, no, 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 I want to transform you. I want to change you. The story takes this unbelievable turn. Verse 17, talking about the son again, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He, he makes this plan of repentance. He says, I, I don't want to be here anymore. I, I'm going to go home and I'm going to beg on the mercy of my father. I'll just say, just hire me as one of your day laborers. I won't even live at the house. I'll just come and work for you. And he gets up and begins this long journey home. And I can just imagine him rehearsing that in his mind. What's my dad going to say? What do I do if he, if he strikes me? What do I do if he turns his back on me? I just got to tell him how, how, where I'm at, that I, I don't want to live this way anymore. And, and there are two types of people. Remember, listening to the story. They're the tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees. There's the busted up, broken ones, who, people who would say, man, that kid is me. I relate to that kid. And they're the Pharisees who are saying, that dad's a weak dad. This kid deserves what he gets. I hope when he gets home, man, that dad just lets into him. And Jesus pressing in on both here. He's pressing in on the Pharisee in us. The Pharisee in us that says, I don't need to repent because I'm doing all right, because I'm following the rules, because I'm good enough, because God loves me because of the good that I do. And when we say that, when we stay in that place of not turning to God because we think I'm already a good person, there's no reunion, there's no tears, there's no hugs, there's no kisses of the Father. The other person listening, the, the ones who relate more to the prodigal, but oftentimes when we're in that, we don't feel like we need to repent either, the, the prodigal in us, because we can get caught in this idea of, well, God loves everyone. It's those bad Pharisees that Jesus is mad at it's, the, it's those religious people that, that, that heap all this shame on me. It's those people who are telling, no, 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 God loves everybody, so he loves me just as I am. And that person misses the reunion, the tears, the kisses of the Father. See, neither of them, whether, you're, you're, whether you have the religious moralist in you or, or maybe you're the one who thinks God's cool with me just as I am, I don't need to make any changes. Jesus said, no, listen, listen, there's transformation that takes place. You can experience the love of God that explodes into your life and changes everything, but it happens when, verse 17, what's it say? When he came to himself. Another way of saying that, when, when he woke up, when he, when he came to his senses, when he gave his head a shake and went, wait a minute, what am I doing? Everything changes. He's, he's coming to his senses. And how do I know that? He's coming to his senses because he's seeing deeper than just the actions. He's not just saying, man, what did I do? Why did I blow money on prostitutes? He, he's seeing deeper than the actions. He, he's seeing his heart against God and against my father. I sinned. That's repentance. He, he's seeing, I was trying to control my own life. I was running away from a home. I was, I was choosing my own way. I was looking for a home where there wasn't a home. What was I thinking? I love how he says, my dad's house is full of bread. 
What's he seeing there? He's saying, man, I wanted to go my own way. I wanted to run to what I thought would give me life. And I've run out here to where there is no bread. I've come up empty. Jeremiah 2.13 says it this way, that, that the God who promises us springs of living water, we say, I don't want that. And we go try to dig out our own wells that hold no water. Comes to his senses, and what am I doing? I, I'm searching for life where there isn't life. And, and what do you do? He says, my dad has spring water, and I, I've been drinking out of the toilet here. What am I doing? Now, let me be clear. What, what's going on in that moment? Because well, if you're like me and you're reading this, going, man, I, I want to be that kid. I want to be that Pharisee that turns, that younger brother that turns. I, I, I don't want to be caught in this, this being away from God. I want to experience the love of God poured out on me. I want to experience the kisses of God. What's that repentance look like? What's it look like to run back to the Father? I think we can contrast what, what, what godly, true repentance is to what worldly sorrow, false repentance is. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, Godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly sorrow produces death. So there's a way in that moment where, where you can give this false sort of repentance, thinking that you're running back to the Father, but really you're staying in the pigsty. So what's, what's the difference then? What's the difference between just saying sorry? Well, what's the godly grief that produces repentance? Well, here's some differences for us. Godly sorrow is vertical. It's vertical. It says he has a sorrow towards the Lord here. He says, I've sinned against heaven. I mean, it starts there. Godly sorrow starts with the Lord, I've sinned against you. Worldly sorrow is, is horizontal. I hate being here with the pigs. It, worldly sorrow is horizontal where you just focus in on the actions, but you don't go deeper beneath that to what was my heart pursuing in this? So it, it's It's vertical. What do I mean by that? Let, let, me, let me unpack that a little more. It, it's it's God-focused, and because it's vertical, it's God and others-focused. He says, I, I've sinned against heaven and against you. He, he recognizes my sin has affected this relationship. And when you actually begin to see the pain that you've caused, both to, to our Heavenly Father and the, the pain you've caused to those around you, you're not, you're not excusing it, you're not avoiding it, you're not moving away from it, you're not trying to evade what's being said. You're just saying, I want to accept this. This is the hurt I've caused you. Worldly sorrow, it's self-focused. Poor me. Look at my pain. And, and you miss the impact of your choices on those around you. You're so, so wrapped up in yourself. It's worldly sorrow. It becomes this godly sorrow. When you start to look out from yourself, start looking around going, wow, look at how I've affected those around me too. And you're broken by that. Here's another difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Well, worldly sorrow, it's, it's, it's emotional but passive. There, there might be lots of tears in it, but there's no real move happening. It, it, or it's, or it's a, a temporary move. I'll just make this, these little bit of changes, but my heart still wants to go back to that thing that I was pursuing before. No heart work. Just, just looking for the opportunity to, to run away from the Father again. And, and so worldly sorrow will have lots of excuses in it. Lots of, lots of yes, I sinned, but... 
but they, but he, but she, but the circumstances, but you don't know the place I was. That's worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow, though. There's an action to it where you move with godly sorrow. You make things right. You do the hard heart work of, of pressing in on your own heart, of, of pursuing godly counsel and wisdom of others, of making changes in your lifestyle, a, a willingness to go to any length. I'm not saying that it's perfect. Man, we're, we're gonna trip and fall in our repentance. Repentance isn't, I'm done with that, I'll never struggle with it again, but there's this, this working at it, this I'll do whatever it takes, I'll do whatever the consequences are. I'll even do the radical confession, the consequences of people knowing about my sin. The radical change is really what a, a godly sorrow is. I want you, Lord, no matter what it takes no matter what this means, no matter what restitution this means, no matter what confession this means, no matter what changes my lifestyle this means, Lord, I want you. Why is, that, why is that so important? Because you're running back to the Father. Here's the last thing I would say, the, the major difference, the way, how do I know that it's godly sorrow, not worldly sorrow? I'd say this, godly sorrow will be marked by humility. If you only remember one thing about what does godly sorrow look like, it's humility. Humility is like the, the fragrance that comes off of godly sorrow. Like you just smell it all over it. When you're like, man, that is just humility. This is somebody who's just, just in, in brokenness and repentance and pursuing the Lord. It, it's opposed to the, those who are demanding, angry, prideful, resentful, blaming, avoiding, excusing. That's not humility. So my question is this, where are you this morning? Are you in a place of running? Whether running towards religion, running towards rebellion. You have an opportunity this morning and maybe you've been stuck and you hear the description of godly sorrow, worldly sorrow, and you're like, you know what, I think I've just been in worldly sorrow. You know, the, the father comes to the older son and says, come on in, we've thrown a party for your brother, he's come home, come on in, and he refuses to go in. And, and maybe that's where you find yourself this morning, man, I don't need to repent. But there's change, there's transformation when God's extravagant love explodes into the heart of the person who responds in true repentance. In fact, look at verse 20. It says he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. There you go, last one. What the father did there was stunning to the men listening to that, to the people listening. Why? They would be like, what? I would never run. Grown men in that day, they didn't run. Well, even in our day, grown men don't run unless you're playing a sport, right? Like if you see somebody running through town and they're not wearing jogging clothes, they've probably committed a crime, right? Or they're running from somebody who wants to commit a crime against them. I don't know. Like just, it, it, so this guy, this, this respectable father, what's he do? He runs. And to run in those days, you'd be wearing these long robes. He would have to pick up his robe. You don't see people running marathons in dresses, right? This is why. It's just not, you can't do it very easily. So he picks up his robe and exposes his legs in that time. That's shameful to do. 
Jesus, again, showing the prodigal love of God, the extravagant love of God, a God who does not care about looking shameful. Can you imagine? God, what are you doing? You look goofy, God. It's ridiculous what you're doing. And God's saying, I don't care. My child's come home. My kid is back. That's our God. That, that's the God looking for you. That's the father who sees his child from far away. And even though you, you, you might be sick and filthy and dirty and wore out from, from sinful choices, the father recognizes you, runs to you, and kisses you. In fact, the word there where he says he kisses him, it's, the word is in the Greek, it gives the, the idea of it's a repeated. It's not just one kiss. He just will not stop kissing his son. You imagine I'm like, dad, 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 I got a speech I need to give you. Dad, and he just won't stop kissing him. Verse 21, and the son said to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. You see the humility there. The father said to his servants, this is great, he's not even listening to him now. Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him. Bring a ring, or sorry, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Dad, I gotta talk to you, son. Don't worry about it, I know your heart's. And he throws the most elaborate party you could ever imagine. Listen, you don't kill the fattened calf unless it's a block party, right? You're inviting the whole town to your house when you do that. And then look at the transformational love of the father. He, he, he says, bring a robe, the best robe. Whose robe is that? That's the dad's robe. And he covers his son's shame. Listen, listen, Christ follower. You are clothed in the righteousness of God. He gives him a ring, this, this symbol of authority, saying, listen, your shame no longer defines you. He gives him sandals for his feet. Why is that significant? Because the only people who walked around barefoot would be those who were servants, who were slaves. He says, no, you're my son. You're brought back into the family. The shame of the sin is gone. Only the father experiences the shame as he runs to him. Now, where's the punishment? I mean, I mean, who pays for that son's reckless living? It can't just be free. The, the cost can't just disappear. I mean, that party cost something. Now, some would say, no, no, no. God's okay with everything. God's all right. God's okay. God just loves everybody. It's totally free. And the Pharisee would say, no, it's not. You can see the argument be happening. The tax are going, it's okay. God's love is free. And the Pharisee, it's not free. You gotta pay. So which is it? Is it free or is it costly? I'd say the answer is both are wrong if that's what they're arguing. It's not free, but you don't have to pay. I mean, who pays? Look down at verse 31. The father's now talking to the, the older brother who's ticked off about the party. He won't even come into the party. He's so mad. He says, I've done everything perfect for you, dad. I've done everything right. And the dad says, verse 31, he said to him, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. Think of what that means. The party, the fattened calf, the ring, the shoes, 
I mean, the, the young son spent all his inheritance. So whose inheritance is being spent now to party this, with this son? It's, it's the older brother. We're going to talk way more about the older brother next week, but, but right now, see this, he hates it. Why? He's been doing good all along, and now the punk brother comes home, and the father throws a party spending his inheritance. Listen, the only way we experience the extravagant love of God, the only way we experience the party of a new life, the, the only way we experience the covering of our shame, the only way we experience being brought back into the family is at the expense of the older brother. And this guy has a stingy, selfish, angry older brother. But here's the good news. You and I don't. We have a better older brother. It's Jesus Jesus Christ, who obeyed the Father perfectly. He, he, he truly, he, he earned the robe. He earned the ring and the sandals and the inheritance. Why? Because he did everything perfectly obedient. But at the end of Christ's life, what happened to Jesus? He was stripped of his robe. But the true older brother, Jesus, comes to you and he says, the only way for you to be clothed is for me to be stripped. The only way for you to get the ring and the shoes and the inheritance is for me to lose it. They're mine. I've earned them, but I freely give them to you. That's why we say that our, our forgiveness is it's more costly than we could ever imagine, but it's also more free than we could ever believe. The, the older brother refused to go into the party. Jesus saying, hey, even this morning, he's saying to us this morning, come home, come home. I'll strip my coat off and give it to you. I'll take my own ring off and give it to you. Come home, let's go, let's party. And listen, if there is no party in your life, if there is no music of grace, if there's no joy of salvation, if there is no forgiveness, if your life is filled with bitterness, it's because you're either like the prodigal and you're letting your badness get in the way of God or you're like the Pharisee letting your goodness get in the way of God. You're trying to control God one way or the other. You're running away from God one way or the other and God steps in in his grace and he picks you up like the sheep. He brings you to the end like the sun in the pigsty. And you, when you turn and you respond to his grace... He says in verse 24, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. And they began to celebrate. As the worship team comes up, as we end off this morning, Romans 5.8 says this, that God demonstrates his love. Now whose love is that? God demonstrates his love. It's God's love being demonstrated. Not, not my love, not your love, not your works, not the good things you do. He demonstrates his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for you. Now think about it. Paul wrote that letter to a group of people who didn't even know that Jesus had died, was crucified at the very moment they were living in sin and rebellion and didn't give a rip about God. And he says that while you were sinners... For you and I, before we were even born, God decided, I'm taking care of the sin problem. I mean, this is the amazing of amazing grace. If, if you grab a hold of this, if you grab a hold of this, it changes you. When you're kissed by the Father, you don't hold on to your shame any longer. 
When you're kissed by the Father, you begin to see God more clearly for who he is. You begin to then see how he views you. You have a a more clear view of yourself. You begin to see others more clearly in the view of God's grace. And your life will be marked by a party of grace. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, as we end off this morning and as we celebrate this morning, your grace Lord God, would you remind us of both the cost, Lord Jesus, that that, that you paid, and remind us that it's freely given to us. God, that we can be changed, that your love is drawing us even now, your grace is drawing our hearts, and we turn and respond in repentance, that you meet us and you change us, that there's no sin too great, no distance too far, for your arm to reach, for you to redeem and save and change us. God, may we know that this morning. God, may this morning lives be changed by that truth. That this morning, those running from God like the prodigal would come home. Those running from you, Lord God, like the Pharisee would come home. And God, we could have a party this morning celebrating your grace. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.